Philly, you are so wonderful and interesting. You deserve a local news podcast all your own. Check out the John Cast on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. This is KYW News Radio In Depth. I'm Matt Leon. As we continue to deal with COVID-19, there is an Omicron subvariant that has recently emerged that has grabbed the attention of public health officials, and we have some questions about it. Like, what is a subvariant? How concerned should we be about it? To get some answers, we caught up with Dr. Neil Goldstein. He is an assistant research professor of epidemiology at Drexel University's Dornsife School of Public Health. So before we get into the deeper discussion, just kind of the concept of a sub-variant. This is something that's new as far as I can see that I haven't come across yet. Uh, what is a sub-variant when we're talking about a virus? It has to do with the mutations as the virus replicates in our body and gets transmitted to other individuals and replicates. Scientists do what's called genomic sequencing of the virus. That is, we look at the genome of it, and that tells us things like uh, how widespread the virus is, um, how similar it is to other viruses, uh, how effective treatments can be, and, and so forth. So we've been doing this genomic sequencing work of the virus all along. And, and this is, people hear terms like um, Delta and Omicron, and these all imply various mutations that have occurred from the original SARS-CoV-2 virus. Now, when, when people hear, hear terms like uh, Delta and, and Omicron, these are names given to the various mutations by, I think it's the World Health Organization or one of their entities. And so as we do this genomic surveillance and we see these mutations happening, they're able to look at the genomic sequence and say, okay, how similar is this to the existing virus, the, the reference strain that we have? And if it looks like it is mutating to to a certain to, to such an extent that it that it warrants calling it a new a new variant, then then they'll put another uh, Greek letter on it. So what is a subvariant then? A subvariant just means that the Omicron virus has mutated to an extent where it looks a little bit different from the original Omicron viruses. And some of these mutations happened in certain proteins of the virus. And as such, they're now labeling this a subvariant. So for all intents and purposes, though, it is still Omicron. It just happens to be that its genomic sequence has changed to such an extent that it warrants kind of a, a new designation or, or a new lineage. And subvariants, this is nothing crazy. This is not this is just part of life when you're dealing with a virus, correct? Absolutely. I mean, this virus, it's an RNA virus. So what that means is that it really doesn't have a good proofreading mechanism. When the virus replicates, when it reproduces in your respiratory tract, there's going to be all kinds of mistakes that happen during this process. Now, for the most part, though, these mistakes result in an inferior virus that doesn't go anywhere. But every once in a while, you have just by chance alone a mutation that makes the virus a little bit better at doing something. So combine this mutation that happens all the time within, you know, within an individual and now spread this across the entire globe where we have billions of people that have been infected and billions of possible mutations occurring um, to, to some exponential degree. So again, by chance alone, we're going to see these mutations happen where maybe a few of them 
are a little bit better at uh, replicating, a little bit better at transmitting and so forth. And that's why we are in the state that we're at right now, because SARS-CoV-2 is still so widespread across the globe. Just by chance alone, we're going to see these variants arise. So this subvariant, if I'm correct, it its name is BA2. Am I correct? That is correct. The original Omicron that we were seeing um, in the U.S. was BA.1, and then we saw another uh, another variation of Omicron uh, BA.1.1, and then we have BA.2 uh, now, which is a, a, a it's about 30 to 50 percent of Omicron uh, of, of Omicron viruses, uh, depending on where you are across the U.S. And the differences with this subvariant, as opposed to the Omicron we first saw, it seems to me in reading as a layman, the main concern is more transmissible. Is there anything else that raises a, a flag about this? So that's what the initial evidence is suggesting, is that it does seem to be a little bit better at replicating compared to BA.1, since we've already used that term, kind of the original Omicron, if you will. Um, But what's important is that this is not like a difference between Delta and Omicron. It's not like when, when, when Omicron first hit, when that variant first emerged in populations, that was much more transmissible than Delta. Now, fortunately, it was much less pathogenic, so it caused a lot less serious disease. So this BA.2 variant, again, what initial evidence is suggesting is that it is a little bit more infective compared to the original Omicron, but we don't have emerging evidence that states it is any more pathogenic, that it's causing any more severe disease than the original Omicron. How I would digest this information is just that Omicron continues to circulate in the population at a very wide scale, regardless of whether you are you know, exposed to BA.1 versus BA.2. That's, to me, something more that for the scientists to, to, to reconcile rather than for the public. If someone was infected with Omicron during the wave we saw uh, through the holidays and, and through January, uh, have they built up, are they in a good spot as far as not necessarily really having to worry about reinfection with this subvariant? Reinfections with BA.2 do appear to be quite rare. Um, in other words, for individuals who were infected with Omicron or who have been vaccinated, we're still seeing excellent protection afforded there. So again, if you were if you were hit during this, you know, the really widespread uh, uh, Omicron wave that we had over the holidays into January and so forth, you should have good protection against BA.2. And to your point of, of the vaccines, all evidence is that the vaccines hold up against this subvariant. No worries there. With the endpoint being protecting against severe disease, hospitalization and mortality, the vaccines are still our best protection. For sure. So we're two years into this. I just kind of, as someone who studies this, who's lived it, who's, where are we in the battle with this? Are we getting close to endemic or are we going to, is, is this what we're kind of experiencing now kind of going to be life for the foreseeable future? 
Well, we're going to see these waves ebb and flow over time. Once you have a virus as widespread in the population as you do with SARS-CoV-2 right now, it's there's no uh, talk about eradicating this. It's just going to be part of uh, what we deal with um, in some kind of seasonal fashion. And I think we're still kind of figuring out what does that seasonality look like? Is this going to look like flu where we have fewer cases during the summer more cases during the winter, or will it model itself after another organism? I mean, so far, based on historic patterns, it does seem to behave similar to flu in that it's a virus that likes um, the the cooler, drier climates as opposed to the warmer, more humid ones. But to, you know, back to your original question of where are we at now with this um, I think we are in that period right now where we we uh, we're seeing this transition to the endemic phase here. Now that doesn't mean that people can totally let down their guard. I mean, as we said before, vaccination is still the best protection, and if you're not vaccinated, that's what you should be focusing on right now. But we're seeing these these um, across a, a bunch of. Um, a bunch of geographies and jurisdictions, the relaxation of various uh, policies. And that is in line with what the current scientific evidence in our current healthcare system um, is able to handle. So we're just kind of experiencing this, this, uh, this transition towards endemic in, in the real-time situation. I'm curious to get your thoughts two years in. Uh, I've talked with other people about messaging we're kind of in a situation now where I feel like a good amount of the public has punted on listening on anything. Uh, but how would you grade the messaging we've seen and what would you like to see public health messaging going forward as we navigate this phase we're in? Well, I think the um, focus on variants is something that probably didn't need to have uh, as much uh, widespread coverage in the media. And that, I, I think, instills a lot of fear in people that they see these mutations arise and they think that we're going to have a virus that is just going to become even more catastrophic. But this is also just the natural evolution of an organism, specifically an RNA virus like this. Um, so that's part of the messaging that I, I think, in hindsight, um, may have done some more damage than, than good. But there has been a lot of positives in the messaging. I mean, the, the, the uptake um, uh, of vaccination, I think, has been very positive. Now, even though there are still uh, limited pockets of people who aren't vaccinated at a population level. It's been quite a successful campaign, in my opinion. I think we've also done a good job kind of uh, walking this difficult line between what does what's the extent that public health should enforce actions versus let um, let individuals uh, uh, decide for themselves. And we have kind of this natural experiment for various uh, jurisdictions across the U.S. of places that have done more, done more from public health, and another place that have done less from public health. And I really think we can use that as a way to learn um, moving forward. You know, what should this appropriate balance look like? But it's not; it really isn't a one size fits all package. So I think another thing that that has been effective during this pandemic has been seeing how each. Uh, has been assessing essentially like how has the science been used 
to inform public health responses uh, in various places um, and what's and what's that look like in terms of controlling case counts, hospitalization, mortality, and so forth. And I'm curious, it, oftentimes the vaccine battles are kind of portrayed as a 50-50 struggle of the pro-vaccine and the anti-vaccine. It kind of seems to me that it is the vast majority are in the pro-vaccine, and if not in the pro, not necessarily anti, maybe, you know, just looking for more legitimate information or whatever, but the hardcore anti-vaccine are the squeakiest wheels that get the most attention and give the perception that there's a lot more uh, people against this than there are. Am I crazy? And the analogy for this would be childhood vaccination. If you look across the U.S. uh, nationally or even just locally in many areas, childhood vaccination rates are outstanding, better than 95 percent for most vaccines. But if you just pay attention to certain conversations that either occur through social media or, or other con- or other um, sources of information that you may uh, follow, you would think that childhood vaccination is incredibly poor in, in the U.S. So what you end up seeing is um, it, it's a minority of individuals who are uh, who are either anti-vaccination or vaccine hesitant, depending on how we want to frame this. But they are just a very vocal group of individuals. Now, the concern is when these individuals cluster together. And what I mean by that is, you know, it's it's at a population level. If you have, say, five percent of the population not vaccinated, that's typically not an issue. But if that five percent all live within the same geographic area or otherwise all mix together somehow, then you have a situation where it's very easy to pass uh, disease around. So that's really the concern that even though it's a minority and a very small minority and a vocal minority, if they cluster together geographically or, or however else, that's what we need to be concerned. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app, and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon, and we'll have another episode out soon.